You're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. Hello and welcome. I'm Jenny Rudolph, and this is COVID Chronicles, my journey to talk with various colleagues around the world about their experience during the COVID pandemic. Today, I'm delighted to be here with my friend and colleague, Jody Hoffer-Gattel, joining me from New Hampshire. Jody, welcome. Good to be here, Jenny. So happy to have you. Jody is a professor of management at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. And Jody is known maybe to many of you as one of the leading proponents of relational coordination. And we're going to be talking a lot about the relevance of that in COVID care over the next 30 minutes together. Jody has written tens of articles and researched this in a whole variety of industries and started this work thinking about how did Southwest Airlines manage to be so successful in such a different model than all the different airlines that were operating at the time. She's also applied the theory of relational coordination to high-performance teams in healthcare with a book that she brought out in 2009. And she's also really interested more recently in transforming relationships for high performance, which uh, she talks about in another book that came out in 2016. So Jody, I'm so excited to dig into all these different areas with you. I'd like to start out though, because this is a really unusual time for all of us humans with kind of a check-in on how you're doing. So how is this for you right now? Yeah, it's changed over time, Jenny. My first reaction was honestly, it was wonderful to just stop and slow down and reflect because we're all so busy. But my next feeling pretty quickly after that was just feeling as more and more people have become sick and died, I just feel it started to feel the weight of the suffering and feel that it's a really sad time for humanity. Since then, I've really started to think we have to learn from this. You know, we, we just have to take advantage of what we're learning in order to you know, better deal with the current situation, but also to be able to just do better going forward and build more resilient healthcare systems and a really more resilient and equitable society. So I've kind of been on this journey and now I'm in a more, what can we do? So really thrilled to be here talking to you today. So Jody, I think your work, which points our attention in the direction of how do we relate to each other and specifically, how do we relate to each other as we coordinate work that we do is so important because COVID pandemic across work systems, whether it's restaurants, whether it's theaters, whether it's delivery, whether it's grocery, or you're in my area of focus, often healthcare, has completely stepped on and broken most of the ways that we usually work together. So I think what is important about talking with you today is getting a take on how we can think about relationships and work coordination. So Jody, what I want to do is start with your amazing work on Southwest Airlines, which I think in some ways got your thinking out there to many of us. And this is what helped you articulate and develop, I think, 
what we now think of as relational coordination. So let me ask you about this. I think what you studied was how does Southwest Airlines consistently get the passenger, their luggage, to their destination safely on time? And it turns out that's actually kind of difficult to do. How did you figure out how they did this? Yeah, well, I went into the field, you know, as a doctoral student at MIT, wanting to understand how people work together. And a few people suggested the airlines would be an interesting place to do that. There was a lot going on in the news at the time about employee takeovers and employee buyouts, employee stock ownership plans. And I thought, well, I want to just see what's happening on the ground, you know, and then maybe build up to what's happening more strategically. But what is actually happening on the ground? So, of course, you just go and watch. And that was a little complicated to get access and permissions. But once I, I got there... Uh, I started with American Airlines, and I learned how challenging it is to do exactly what you said, what you just described, that what I call now the flight departure process. There are 12 different groups involved in that, from pilots to baggage handlers and all these other functions in between. And there's a lot that has to be done in a short period of time in order to have the outcomes that you described. Airlines typically have done it in a more sequential way. Like this group will do one thing, then the next group will do the next thing, and then other group. So it doesn't require as intense coordination. It's more sequential interdependence. Oh. It's more of a, you know, a chain process, as they said at American. And so that avoids a lot of the need for intense coordination, avoids the, the potential for conflict, but it also takes a long time sitting on the ground. So that's so interesting, Jody. Uh, you and I are both uh, trained in organizational behavior. And when you use the word sequential, it points me to one of the fathers of thinking about coordination at work, uh, J.D. Thompson, and he talked about sequential, pooled, reciprocal, and relational coordination, which is where you ended up focusing. So after you left or moved on from American Airlines to Southwest, somehow your attention got turned from sequential coordination more to relational coordination. Tell me about that. Really, J.D. Thompson talks about sequential, reciprocal, and pooled. And pooled is not really relevant here, but reciprocal is. And that's really when you're doing things more simultaneously. So what I do has feedback loops to you, and what you do has feedback loops to me. So it becomes more complex and more real-time working in parallel so that we don't have to have the plane sitting on the ground for an hour, it could be 20 minutes. And that lets you get a lot more productivity, but it's more challenging for the people. What I saw at Southwest was them adapting to their goal, which was to turn the plane around in 10 to 20 minutes. And that required all these 12 groups doing things in parallel, simultaneously, and having to update each other constantly about what was going on. Okay, well now what's the passenger count? What's going on with the baggage? How's the fueling coming along? How much are we gonna need in terms of provisioning? It requires a very different kind of coordination, which Thompson called reciprocal or actually mutual adjustment is needed when you have reciprocal. And I guess what I noticed as I interviewed people about it, there's a different kind of relationship that's needed to do it. And so I used the term ultimately relational coordination to suggest it's really not just an information processing problem. It's a problem of coordinating the interdependencies, not just between the tasks, but between the people who are doing those tasks. So right now, as all of our ways of relating within healthcare systems have been disrupted and disturbed, 
that relational coordination, I think, is becoming ever more important and that reciprocal, adaptive, just-in-time type of work. For us to understand how that plays out, though, Jody, I think it would be helpful to understand it in the airline industry first. As you know, I've been a fan and a student of your work, especially over the last couple years, and I'm very enamored with the ideas of developing a shared goal, developing shared knowledge of each other's tasks, which in turn, you write and research, produces some sort of mutual respect. Can you explain how that happened in Southwest? Yeah. I think I'll first mention that this way of working, I think, is very relevant to the curtain time because it matters most to be able to do this when you've got a lot of uncertainty, which means you, there's there's a gap between what you know and what you need to know constantly, and when there's a lot of interdependence, which we've described, and when there are time constraints, and we know that's all true right now. And the way I saw it playing out at Southwest was, so you have these 12 groups, and you could typically think about them each as having their own goal. Like, think about functional silos. This is my goal. That's your goal. Good luck getting yours done because I'm just looking at mine. Can you give a couple examples? Yeah. My goal as a person on the ramp at loading baggage is to get all the bags on there. And as they said at American, our job is you. The bell rings. We go out. We load the bags. We unload the bags. We load the new bags. And we go back and wait for the next bell. But when you ask the same thing to baggage handlers out west, they're like, well, our job is actually to get the bags you know, loaded in a way that's going to make sense for the weight and balance so that we can get the information to the pilot that, they, that he or she needs in a timely way so they can set the controls for takeoff and landing properly. And so our job is so important and it's connected to everything else. So the baggage handlers, instead of just thinking of their narrow silo of baggage handling, are thinking about what the pilots might need. And similarly, the gate agent who might be done with his or her job may notice that the bags still aren't on the plane and might they even like run down there and help with that? There's this awareness of interdependence and that our goal is to get you there on time with your bags safely and happy. And so my job is not just to load the bags, it's to get you there on time with your bags safely and happy. And if we all have that set of goals, then we are more attentive to the whole and not just, and more attentive to how the way I do my thing is going to affect your ability to do your thing because it's really our thing. So Jody, I'm hearing you talk about the basically coordination among different role groups. And it sounds like they were all clear about a shared goal, which by the way, in and of itself is an achievement. So How do we get our patients to their destination on time with their baggage safely and happy? I wish I had that much clarity every day on exactly what I was trying to do. Um, So that is an accomplishment, and I think we could all think about that. How can we clarify our goals when we're working together in groups? What I found kind of electrifying about the Southwest book and when I've looked at your work in other areas is really the shared knowledge of each other's tasks. I think most of us are pretty darn clueless about what each other do and what each other need to do to help reach a shared goal. Uh, So could you talk a little bit about that? How did you identify that? What kinds of things did you see? Well, what was interesting is when I asked people to describe their work, just like with the shared goals, it became apparent that at Southwest, they were pretty aware of what everyone else was doing and how it related to their work. And in others, it's like, that's just a different world. 
I'm not even aware of it. I don't think about it. So I called it shared knowledge, but in a sense, it's systems thinking. It's the ability to think about yourself as part of an interdependent whole, where you fit in and how what you do affects every other little piece. Part of their training was walking people through, you know, having a coach on their first week, walking them through to say, and when you do this, put this in the computer, for example, these are all the people who get it. And this is why they need to know it. So it's that kind of awareness of how you are part of the whole that allows people to engage in that systems thinking and have what I call shared knowledge. Yeah, it informs your actions. And what I think that does is lead to the mutual respect, because now you understand how every little piece, no matter how visible or invisible it might be to the public, is essential, because you see how it all works together. So I think it's that recognition of the interdependence that helps people to really see and value each piece of, of the work. As our colleague Amy Edmondson writes about in Teaming and in the Fearless Organization, when you recognize your interdependence with others, boy, is that humbling and can certainly lead you to appreciate and respect what they bring to the party. So I, I, I love that uh, piece of your work. So Jody, let's turn our attention now to the current challenges of COVID-19 care and focusing primarily on those health systems that have you know, relatively high patient populations, complex, you know, demands. Though I am aware that there are real challenges in Australia, for example, where they have a relatively low number of COVID patients, but the hospitals have completely been reconfigured to cope with and address the challenges of COVID care that are barely happening. And that has some negative potential fallout for the other patients. Uh, so that's a matter of relational coordination, I think, as well. So what I think is interesting, and feel free to guide us here, Jody, is that a lot of our healthcare systems were developed for relatively high levels of predictability in terms of patient flow, demand for care, seasonality of care, patterns throughout the week. Professions have their defined roles. Role groups know what they're doing. And what we have now is many role groups are being asked to provide care in spaces they haven't worked in before. So for example, in my hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, certified registered nurse anesthetists who often work by themselves in the OR, just as my anesthesia colleagues do, are working in teams in ad hoc ICUs, coordinating with different role groups that they don't even usually work with, or working collaboratively constantly when they're used to working in a more defined set of roles in the OR with the surgeon or the circulating nurse, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder if you could talk with us about how you see relational coordination helping or being part of managing this very uncertain new way of working. From what I'm hearing from the health systems we're working with, we have a health system learning network where we have seven health systems getting together to check in briefly each week. It's been a big challenge for all the reasons you've said, in part because people are going beyond their usual roles. But I have to say, just as a precursor, that even during quote unquote normal times, coordination is a challenge in healthcare because you do have such well-defined roles that 
aren't necessarily developed as professions with attentiveness to coordinating with each other group. Just to acknowledge that you're already starting at a, at a point where, as you know, because you work with health systems all the time, they're already working to coordinate better. And now they have this brand new space that completely uh, takes it to a new level. Being able to figure out what are the, the things that we're already doing that are helpful. Like maybe we're already fairly good at communicating. What we're hearing is that the groups that are already pretty good at coordinating the work are just getting better because it intensifies and clarifies what's the shared goal. You know, under normal times, you really have to be thinking about multiple goals at the same time. For example, training the residents and caring for the patients. And now everyone's focused on this one thing, which is saving the patients, keeping the patients alive. And it helps to clarify and intensify all of that effort and create that shared goal. People are sometimes moving into roles, as you say, that they're not familiar with. So instead of kind of taking for granted and maybe being afraid to say, what is it you do? Maybe it actually opens up the space to say, because we're doing something new to say, what is it you do? So maybe it's allowing conversations, uh, what we call conversations of interdependence, where people don't feel silly asking others for clarity on what they're doing because everyone recognizes this is a new situation. So you're able to have those conversations real time without feeling like somehow you're revealing your ignorance. That's just a, a thought. But for some reason, when you already have a group that's starting to coordinate well with each other, they report that they see it just getting so much better because the intensity of the moment. Thinking about what you just said about normalizing asking questions or normalizing not knowing, and thinking about your experience at Southwest Airlines versus some of the other airlines, thinking about your experience with tens of different healthcare systems over the last many years. This problem of having to know the answer, the problem of assuming that people will perhaps think less of me if I admit I don't know, disrupting that seems to be so powerful and generative. I've heard this from intensivists, pulmonologists, anesthesiologists, emergency medicine physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, many of the clinicians that I've been talking with, although they feel on the edge of their expertise, they are so relieved that they're allowed to ask questions and be interdependent in a way that they're not usually able to do. It creates a kind of almost camaraderie, but also as you say, interdependence. You know, I think about trying to purposely, as a leader, create contexts where people feel psychologically safe to ask questions, speak up, and so on. And there's something about the structure and uncertainty of the situation that seems to have just caused that organically. Your thoughts on that? I think it is exactly what you're saying. People feeling the permission to put things aside, do whatever is necessary to achieve the goal. They've been given that permission, and that sometimes means not just asking dumb questions like, what is it you do and what can I do right now to help you? Cross lines of status, by the way, recognizing it's not just the doctor that is to be that is doing valuable work, but that we all are because it becomes so visible in a time of crisis, but also seeing when there's a structure or a norm that just is getting in the way and just being able to put it aside and say, we don't have to deal with that right now. So it creates a space for not only questioning and learning, but getting rid of the usual structures to see what might be more useful right now. 
So Jody, I'm at high risk for focusing on uh, dyads and groups and teams because that's my area of expertise. And thank goodness we have you on today because we can focus on a little bit more macro types of questions. So given what we're talking about right now, I and given what you said at the beginning of our conversation, that this is an opportunity for us to think about how can we learn from this current situation and pull forward into the post-COVID recovery phase to whatever the new world is going to be in three years, and boy, is it going to be hard to get there. What can we, what do you think we should be thinking about regarding our healthcare systems that are you know, so complex with many competing priorities? I've heard you talk in the past about developing some sort of a balanced scorecard. Take us from the world of a unit caring for a COVID patient, pull us back to the 30,000 foot view that you have so often, and talk to me a bit about these bigger issues and how you think healthcare might be reconfigured based on our current experience. Well, thank you for asking, because I think that really is the opportunity right now, in part because this pandemic has served as a disruptive source of disruptor that has led to innovation. So the real challenge right now is figuring out what we're doing differently and how we want to continue and then sustain that. And that is going to require some new structures. So part of the theory of relational coordination is not just those that way of working together and how it drives outcomes, but what are the organizational structures that help to support it? And what are the ones that put us right back in the old silos? So we can see the difference. And so I think one of them, as you say, is, you know, really has to do with this, what I would call shared accountability. It's clear that we're not just accountable for our little piece, but we're all accountable for the whole and for contributing to the whole and being understanding of how we are contributing or not to that whole. And that involves coaching and feedback, but it also involves clarity about our shared goals and feeling accountable for achieving them. So I think the the Kaplan and his colleagues came up with the balanced scorecard. The cool thing about that is that it's a way to recognize formally that as an organization, we have multiple shared goals, right? And we put them up there. And I think one way that we can move beyond the siloed accountability that we have right now, as people are saying in some of the, one of the Boston healthcare systems, you know, right now we don't have to be, you know, competing over priorities, but as soon as this is over, we're going to be back to our kind of whose priority is more important. So getting them out there so we can recognize as a system, what are the shared goals that we have? And then saying, okay, so let's have leadership that makes it clear the proposals that come forward that succeed are going to be the ones that are attentive to meeting multiple of these shared goals at the same time. Jody, I'd like to unpack for myself and our listeners a few of the vocabulary words we've put out there and also some examples. So balanced scorecard, what is on that scorecard varies, but it's often things like not only the financial bottom line, but the environmental impact, social justice, are there other things that you're hearing that are importantly measured by organizations? Quality goals, safety goals, worker well-being, perhaps innovation going forward, those things that are critical for the organization to succeed. And now you've talked about applying potentially um, some of the values of and or constructs from relational coordination of having shared goals and potentially having shared knowledge of each other's tasks to the system level. and 
I wonder if you could give us an example, either uh, imaginary one or a real one, of what do you mean by shared goals, and are you talking about within a healthcare system, across healthcare systems? One thing I can imagine, for example, just to uh, lead the witness a little bit, is healthcare disparities are becoming in quite stark relief in the course of COVID care. But when we go back to regular life, whether it's that kind of equity issue or others, what do you see as the important changes that we could make by focusing on shared goals or negotiating around shared goals? Yeah. So an example would be, I've got a proposal that is going to be good for safety outcomes. But somebody else comes up with a proposal that's going to be good for safety and quality and workers at the same time. And so that proposal is going to get more attention than one that's only focused on one of these outcomes. One thing about relational coordination is we found that it's conducive to multiple outcomes simultaneously. So it's that way of managing interdependence that allows us to move the dial on multiple attributes simultaneously. Workers have better experience with their work when others are respectful of them, and it allows them to create a safer environment for patients and get better quality outcomes, and often with less waste. So that's an example, a proposal that would move forward faster in a system that says, we're going to take shared goals and, and really elevate the proposals that allow us to achieve multiple simultaneously. But, you know, this equity issue makes me attentive to the current payment structure for healthcare, And that's the other thing. So we can have all kinds of shared accountability, but if we don't have a payment structure, which takes it now to the next level of policy and how do we get paid for healthcare in this country, what I keep hearing and what we all know is even after multiple decades of working to get beyond rewards for episodic care to a more continuous population-based care or building community health and wellness, we may actually be at a point now due to what's been made so apparent in this crisis that maybe we can get to that. And the inequities are part of it. So when you have, as we know, social determinants of health that affect health outcomes that are not something you can address in an office visit. They're not something you can address when someone shows up to the emergency department. They require more of a partnership approach with patients, families, and their communities. And so if we move finally beyond episodic payments for care, which we're one of the fewest, few countries left in the, in the world that still does that, and move toward payments for a, a larger set of goals, basically achieving health rather than delivering health care, then Hospitals and health systems and their community partners will be able to invest in the smart ways to address these underlying issues more holistically and address these inequities that have really reached epidemic proportions. So applying what you're saying to the problem of producing health rather than providing health care, when we have great differences in the social determinants of health, whether I grow up in a town like Lexington, Massachusetts, where I live now that has very low air pollution, has clean, safe streets, versus growing up in Gary, Indiana, that has a lot of industry with a variety of pollutants spewing into the air. Apologies to the mayor of Gary, Indiana. And I have asthma, and I might be obese. What I need to get good care is a shared set of goals between my school, my community, my mayor, and my healthcare provider 
to help me as a young person growing up there have health, not just health care. How am I doing? That is perfect. And I would just take it the next step to say, even within the metropolitan area of Boston, we don't have to go to Gary, Indiana. We can have all of those negative and harmful living conditions within 10 miles of where somebody else grows up. You know, you look at Robert Putnam's book, My Kids, Our Kids, and he talks about the town he grew up in, uh, Clinton, Ohio, where, you know, in the 50s, there were all these kids from, it was just like a lot of places in the U.S. in the 50s. There was a pretty large middle class. Kids went to the same schools. They were on the same sports teams. And you could be well-to-do, less well-to-do, but there was a huge middle class that you belong to. That same town now is like two separate lives that do not intersect. The traveling soccer team versus no soccer team at all, et cetera. So it's really part of the healthcare system is really reflecting a, a huge shift and it's been gradual enough that we hardly notice it from uh, the 50s to now, the turning point having been in the early 70s from decreasing inequality to growing inequality under Reagan. And it's just continued so that we now have such a divided uh, society that we are at great risk. And the kind of healthcare payment system that, that we're talking about here would not be the entire solution, but it's a big step in that direction because it is more holistic. And it will, it will be pretty disruptive if we go that way in a, very, in a, in a good sense. So Jody, um, we're going to wrap up our conversation in the next few minutes. And before we do, I want to do two things. Uh, one is I want to talk a, just briefly about your and my colleagueship and sort of mutual support in our career group over the last whatever it is, eight years, nine years, something like that, just briefly, because I feel that connectedness is so important right now. And then I want to give you the uh, second to last word before we kind of wrap this up. So first, our career group. So you and I have been in a career group with our other org behavior colleagues, Kate Kellogg from MIT, uh, Erica Foldy from New York University and uh, Vicki Parker from the University of New Hampshire. And, you know, we kind of listen to each other's woes and help each other with challenges. And given the fact that we all have pretty demanding jobs, I'm always amazed that we all show up there for that meeting. Why do you think that is? Well, I think you said two of the key words, which is listening and helping. There's something so powerful about that that really intersects with what we're talking about here. I think we show up, I show up because I know I'm going to get very real help after people have listened closely to what's going on. I know I'm going to have the satisfaction of feeling like I've helped each of you deal with whatever is foremost on your mind right now. And there's also, because it is continuous, this sense of checking back in and kind of accountability and awareness of each other's life path right? That, that creates a context for every bit of advice that we can give each other. So there's something very beautiful about that. Yeah, that's so great. And I, I think, uh, given what you were talking about earlier, the interdependence, um, each of us have different skills. Like I know I can always rely on Kate Kellogg to help me with X, and I can rely on uh, Erica Foldy to comment on Y. And each of us have our different kind of areas of strength and mojo, and, and I think also revelation of our vulnerabilities and challenges. 
is another really important part of that group, I think, for all of us. So I just wanted to bring that up because I think in this time, especially reaffirming the ways that we can be there for each other, whether we're strong or whether we're weak, is really, really powerful. Jody, so I really appreciate that we've gotten to talk about Southwest Airlines, some of the origins of relational coordination, how it might apply in the current moment. And I'd just like to go out on any final thoughts you have, things that are kind of on your mind. What I think about now is going forward and building the capacity to solve more than the current crisis, because we know this is huge. But as we get to the peak and just beyond the peak, it's really time to think about how we build what we've learned into our systems. We've talked about that. And two of the crises that are already here, but we're not really seeing them, but now I think we are seeing them more, are the health inequities, which really are already a crisis, uh, but we haven't called it that in the same way. And can we have the same kind of concerted effort around that crisis? And can we take this crisis of loneliness and social isolation and the opioid epidemic that may come in part from that and treat that as a crisis? And I guess in order to, to, to do that, We've got to think about how to build resilient systems that can just take whatever comes at us and treat it as, give it the, the attention that it requires and respond in a, in a highly coordinated, caring way. And one of the things that I've seen that is very powerful at creating resilience is relationships at every level from the this level, the human empathy between individuals, dyads, to empathy between social groups and people we don't know, but we know that they matter and they're human beings just like ourselves. How do we take this small circle that we typically, almost everybody I think in the world has some small circle of empathy where they truly care about people around them and they're cared for in turn and make that bigger? Because when we were in earlier times with a less interdependent world, that was probably sufficient, you know, at a more tribal family level to have that small circle of interdependence and small circle of empathy. But we are now in a highly interdependent world, global. And so how do we take those relationships of empathy and caring and extend them to encompass this much broader network of interdependency that we are all kind of inextricably involved in. So I think that's really our challenge. And that's what's going to make us resilient, not just as health systems and not just as individuals, but really as a species, uh, was going to allow us to actually survive because that's, that's actually an issue right now. Will we survive as a species? It's not to be taken for granted. And I remember Mark saying at one point what he thinks human beings are headed toward is something like a species consciousness rather than my nation, your nation, my family, your family. But to actually get there is going to somehow require us to take what we already know how to do, empathy and caring, and extend that to people we do not know. Well, to put a bow perhaps on that beautiful set of challenges that you've put out for us is that it's shocking to wake up every morning and realize that pretty much everybody in the whole world is going through something fairly similar. Of course, the humans in Syria, it's way worse there. There are other places in the world where it's COVID plus a really terrible situation. 
But I think, as you've said, if there's ever a chance for us to kind of develop some shared goals of the, this lofty goal as a species, develop some empathy around what are each other's tasks and challenges, and through that, develop some mutual respect. I think your theory could be extremely helpful to us now. So thank you so much, Jody Hoffer-Gattel, for joining us, and really appreciate your time. It's been so much fun to talk to you, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedsim.org.